Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, fighting back against the book censors and wannabe book burners in Texas with Tony Diaz, founders of El Libro Traficante. Also, Kathy Kelly on Madeline Albright as a war criminal. And our regular segment, Fruit Fight, on food injustice with Keith McHenry. All this coming up straight out on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network live in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And we begin this segment on the show with... Uh, the possible book banning and the book burners. There's more and more people who think uh, uh, that uh, some books are dangerous and they need to be banned, perhaps even burned. Uh, and the battle has been going on for some time. And somebody who's been at the forefront of this battle is our good friend Tony Diaz. He's the founder of El Libros Traficante. He, I believe, if I've got this right, was the first Chicano to earn a Master's of Fine Arts degree from the University of Houston in creative writing. Tony Diaz, it is great to have you back. Dennis, it's, well, it's great to say hi. It's terrible that these book banners are at again. <laughs> it's great to, well, be- that is terrible. And it's also terrible that the governor of California uh, has decided uh that ethnic studies is too dangerous and vetoed and banned it essentially. Your thoughts on that? It, it really one big piece of evidence that that I think that kind of fills in the puzzles. A, a couple things, Dennis. One, I honestly thought we would be having just birthday party observation for the Libre Traficante Caravan, which we got to remind people ten years ago. Right-wing Republicans in Arizona banned Mexican-American studies. If we have to remind people about that, that means the erasure she's been erased, right? So I, I thought we would simply mark it, observe it, and continue with our work. Turns out we got to fire up the machine again. And I think here's what happened, Dennis. I haven't had a chance to talk about this too much because... You know, not everybody's smart as you, Dennis. <laughs> but I like the way you're putting this Please. all together. Because here, here in Texas, they're not connecting the dots. Here, here's some dots to connect. The people who want to end freedom of speech, they don't plan one or two years ahead. Or like some of our community does, you know, they have to do things on the rush or on the fly. They obviously are planning in 10-year cycles. Because here we are, 10 years later, the specifics have changed the tactics are the same. Here's the other thing that we have to open our eyes to. Um, there was also a bill here in Texas that would have, uh, House Bill 1504 by a state rep, Christina Morales, that would have made uh, ethnic studies a requirement for high schools. They've passed the courses here in Texas. It's not a requirement at every uh, district. That would have changed it. I think a lot of us as activists, we believed in pushing political capital um, some of us were close to it. You, you're mentioning California. In, in Texas, we're not shocked that the right-wingers here are opposing it. It was shocking to see the governor of a lib- supposedly liberal state 
not champion ethnic studies from day one. The fact that the community had to fight so hard over several years, that is mind-blowing. But the lesson simple. At the end of the day, it's about community. It's about community. So we haven't abandoned our community in the process. We've been working on it. One of the other co-founders, the Libre Traficante, Lupe Mendez, he's Texas Poet Laureate now. Um, I'll come back again if you invite me. My book is coming out in August as well. So you know what? We, we learned our lesson, but we've always been true to the community. So we're going to fire up the community again. We'll start some new marches. It, it, it's on. We're going to answer these well, book banners with a movement. And that's, uh, let, let me hearken back. Uh, we met you in Tucson amidst mm-hmm. a group of uh, crying kids who were desperate, who could not believe that the, the powers that be uh, in Tucson had decided to literally rip the ethnic studies program out from under the kids in the middle of a semester. So we uh, learned a great deal broadcasting from Tucson and covering that story, how deep the program meant uh, went, how important what it meant to these kids. Can you talk a little bit more about why it's crucial and it could be, you know, some kids talked about being suicidal until they got into this program and began to feel good about themselves and their culture. And I'm glad you you brought up the heroes. It the heroes of this movement are the students because back when that is psychological the right-wingers in charge in Arizona, not just that ban of ethnic studies, but they enforced it by walking into classrooms and in front of our young, bossing up books by our most beloved authors. That's straight-up psychological warfare. But these youth, they told their community, they protested at the Tucson Unified School District Board, they were fighting day in, day out, they were telling the world I mean, everyone now takes for granted social media. It was at the you know, early phases of that. They were telling people through blogs and videos. And one of our own crew, uh, Brian Parra, she's the one that heard some of these messages from the students. So it was those students that taught us as Tejanos. They, they taught us that if they're in the belly of the beast, standing up to these oppressors, we have to not just stand with them, not just get them their books, but we got to set and school all these people that want to ban the book. So it was heartbreaking to see that trauma. It was powerful to see all the professors that created that award-winning curriculum. I want to give a shout out to all the early plaintiffs that were educators that were sued, maligned, or fired, and had the, the courage to sue the state of Arizona um, they were the first on the, uh, as plaintiffs, the students to sue Arizona, you had to be a current student. So you had some early students that started those lawsuits, including my Arce, uh, Cristina Lopez, uh, Nicholas Dominguez, and they pushed it at the, at that level of, of legal, uh, legal enterprise. We then said, we have to unite with our brothers and sisters in Tucson. We were, you know, in Houston, but you know, I don't care how far you are. You ban us, we're going to be there. And we showed up. We united with them. But we learned from them how to fight these forces. And I, I want to remind people, yeah, we, we got banned. 
our community came together and we schooled them. And I'll tell you what, I will, I will make this bold proclamation. These right-wingers, they're not going to ban Mexican-American studies again because we schooled them, but they're using other tricks and tactics. And now they're going after all the BIPOC brothers and sisters. So that's what we're seeing here in Texas. But we're, we've seen this before. We just got to unite with new tactics. And what I learned also, Tony Diaz, when we did that story and continuing on through, is this kind of thorough and well-crafted program, which it was, and it got accolades because of it, and it was effective and successful. What I learned is that this kind of effective program is education for the entire family. It begins, uh, the, the discussion starts in school, but the books and the kids come home and the dialogue uh, continues over the dinner table. Uh, and that's what we call empowerment, wouldn't you say? No, no, w- without a doubt. And I think at that moment, we didn't really get a chance to break that down. This book, it's called The Tip of the Pyramid. Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. It's out in August, but I try and chronicle not just what's already been reported, about community cultural what they went after, Dennis. I think you hit the nail right on the head there. The, the forces that be, they wanted to discourage community from coming together. They don't want, they, they're not just scared of the Chicanas and Chicanos reading books about the history and culture. They don't want that family engaged. They don't want those family libraries. They really do want to silence the voices across the board. But and let me give, let me remind folks of some facts as well. Dr. Nolan sure. Cabrera, he, him and his team, um, they actually quantified specifically using the most detailed analysis and evaluations. They quantified how that program, the six years it was in place, thoroughly transformed the dropout rate. There was a double-digit dropout rate, which is what the, these people that want to quiet... The, the, that we're losing you. Maybe you could turn your head a little bit, Tony. We're, lo- oh, we're sure. losing you a bit. Sure. I, I'm jumping around too much. I'm getting, I'm getting too excited here. <laughs> is that better? It's good. Thank okay. you. Yes. Okay. But the, the book uh, specifically and technically quantifies what we already know that when people are exposed when students are exposed to culturally relevant material they not just in that particular area across the board science math and the graduation rate shot up to 98 percent the the, la- the last thing i'll say if you unless you want to hear more i'm happy to talk about it but the, that evidence that was submitted at the texas state uh, at the arizona supreme court to help overturn that racist law. So this is not speculation. That is coded in the law in the law annals. But we, we already knew that. That that's why we're inspired by the House on Mango Street, Ana Castillo, Dagoberto Gilb. In the past we had to tell people one by one that that's what's happening. I guess we had to go to court to prove it. Indeed. We are really delighted to be speaking with our friend Tony Diaz. He's the founder of El Libros Traficantes, uh, and they have been fighting to keep the books in the library to stand against ethnic studies. Let's zero in now. You're talking to us from Tejas, uh, the heart of the matter. That's where they, they create all those racist <laughs> textbooks. Most people don't understand that most of the textbooks uh, in America are made in Texas. I remember 
remember when I was a, a grade school teacher uh, and I was teaching a bunch of kids who they called them emotionally disturbed, but they were rightfully disturbed. And part of the reason was because they were uh, not getting the kind of education and the kind of care that uh, the rich, the kids get in the uh, richer neighborhoods. I know we had to make our own books uh, and those mm -hmm. textbooks were useless and racist. So tell us about Texas and what the battle looks like there. Sure. And we're, we're actually, we just had the 10 year birthday party for the Libertafican caravan from 2012 when we smuggled the books back into uh, Tucson. We're about to launch a caravan to Austin, Texas, which is the capital. And that's going to be on April 29th because here's what's going on now. I know a lot of people, I, I hesitate to call it the anti-CRT movement because we all know that there's no examples of graduate level courses like critical race theory being introduced into kindergarten to eighth grade. That's just not happening. But, you know, but there is this right-wing Republican here, uh, Dan Patrick, who's lieutenant governor. He has said that he wants to go after professors who teach critical race theory. That's a different ballgame because I'm looking right here at my home library because we all got to have our home libraries, Dennis. You know, when, once you read the BAM book, they can't take it away. And in my copy, full book titled Critical Race Theory. Okay, we're losing you. The, the sound is a little bit oh. bad. Try and adjust again. Oh, sorry. Let me move a little bit this way. Hopefully. Okay. It's a little bit sorry. better. Yeah. Oh, yes. no, no. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But there's an actual book called Critical Race Theory that is taught at the graduate level and college level. So when this guy is talking about going after the professors who teach CRT, to me, uh, black and Chicano professors and Chicano professors who teach African-American history and Mexican-American history. So we're leading a caravan from here on the east end of Houston, Segundo Barrio, where there's a wall called Latina Because our Latina icons demand to know if this guy thinks their history is critical race theory and if he's going to ban it. We're getting on buses April 29th. Buses are coming from San Antonio also. We're going to start an underground library in Austin. You believe that, Dennis? You believe we're going to start underground libraries again? That's what it's like here in Texas. Okay. Underground uh, libraries, huh? You got to sneak that, the books in. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. But we're experts, so we're going to be launching the Austin Underground Library. Folks can donate books. Um, and we're also going to lead a procession of lowriders and bookmobiles from Mexi Arte Museum all the way to the front door of Dan Patrick to demand that he say whether or not Mexican-American studies is critical race theory, which is not. But we're also going to launch and recognize the Latina icons from Austin and demand that their history be extolled. We want murals for them in Austin. Um, you know, the COVID, the COVID shutdown's over, so they had the upper hand because our community... As we all know, our community had trouble getting access to to schools. Um, there was that big digital divide. They had this advantage to really push their anti-freedom of speech campaigns. But now we're organizing again. We can convene again. We're all triple vaxxed again in our movement. 
So we're waking up. We're pushing it. If anybody wants to join us, if they want to jump on a caravan this time around, we're happy to help them out. But we're, we're also coming to state too, um, Dennis. So we'll be coming to California again at some point. Of course, going back to to Arizona as well. And we're going back to all the underground libraries that we started before. Um, and let, let me let me say this too. We're not repeating what we did before because last time we stopped them in one state. We contained their racist law to Arizona and our community was able to focus on that and overturn their racist law. This time those racist laws are spread. So we're gonna answer their decade long movement with a decades long movement. So we, no one needs to mistake this for a rerun and no one needs to mistake this for patchwork. This is decades long movement that we're planning in place and we're activating every Texas city and we're gonna be reaching out to our friends in other states as well. That's what's up. I noticed, I'm sure you uh, took note of the fact that our good friend and brother who contributed to the show, Martina Spada, won the National Book Award this week. And uh, Martina Spada uh, has been recognized also by the censors because they, I think they yanked uh, <laughs> uh, Zapata's disciples, his essays, uh, from the libraries as well. And I will point <laughs> out that National Public Radio censored, They first they commissioned him to do a poem on sort of freedom and freedom of, ex of expression uh, in the United States. And then NPR censored him because he wrote the poem about Mumia Abu-Jamal. So censorship is alive and well, even if you win, I guess, the National Book Award. Um, <laughs> But let's, but let's, the the battle continues. Yeah, <laughs> but you're right. Uh, Brother Martin was being taught in Tucson Independent School District. That was one of the that was one of the dangerous books. To before yeah. he got this national recognition, so those students were ahead of the time. <laughs> They were ahead of their time, and of course, Martina Spada was ahead of their time. But National Public Radio, remember, you did it. We proved it. <laughs> Don't do it again. That's Final right. words. You want to you have a sign-off uh, for the governor of California just because that's where we're broadcasting from? Well, what's your word if you could eye-to-eye -eye them? Uh, uh, oh, I tell you what. Here's what I would say to, to both governors because— I guess it doesn't matter if you're talking to a right-leaning governor or left-leaning governor. Right now, we're, we're going to school the Texas right-wingers and make sure that our history and culture is protected. But we got gas in these buses, and we're happy to go to California to, make, to join our brothers and sisters that have been doing the work for decades. And this is the turnaround time. So, you know, this vato needs to get on the right side of history, and we're happy to correct him as well. But right now, we got our hands full in Texas, but... We're taking care of business here. If people want to know more, they can go to LibroTraficante.com. And if you're within the sound of my voice, we're deputizing you into Libro Traficantes. All right. Well, me and Miguel Gabriel Molina, the senior producer for this show, are going to be at the border to welcome you in. Uh, Tony Love Diaz, <laughs> uh, we thank you for taking the time out to be with us on Flashpoints. Please don't be a stranger. We always love to have you. Likewise. Gracias, hermanos. Bye. All right. Adios. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Kathy Kelly. 
Oh, about um, terrible contradictions uh, in the face of war and oppression. All of this coming up straight ahead. Stay with us. Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are delighted to welcome back to these airwaves, Kathy Kelly. We wish it was under more pleasant uh, celebratory circumstances, but again, the wars rage, the suffering is immense, and the contradictions are overwhelming. Uh, Kathy Kelly, welcome back to Flashpoints. It's good to have you with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I wish it was under more pleasant circumstances, but um, I, I don't know where where do you want to come into this, Kathy? The we are watching a vicious uh, attack by the Russians into Ukraine. It's a horrific situation, and we're hearing about it twenty four hours a day. We're we're understanding and learning about the suffering of families displaced, about mothers and children being separated, about the bombing of civilian uh, structures. We're hearing repeatedly about the multiple commissions of war crimes. Uh, and crimes against humanity, and it looks like maybe there are. What's your response to this? Well, I think there's no justification for attacks against civilians, for plunging people into refugee status, for creating orphans and bereaving families. It's, it's, uh, it's never, ever acceptable. War is never an answer. And of course, every effort to find a diplomatic way to end this war as soon as possible is is crucial. But I also think that it, the most helpful thing political classes in the United States could do would be to approach this as Ilhan Omar so eloquently advised, she herself a refugee from Somalia and from war, she said, we need to exercise foresight and humility and courage in that context. The courage for peace, not for war, and not to keep on stoking up the, the, the angers and the hatreds and the weapons, but keep on trying to figure out as best we can what might be a, an off-ramp so that a negotiation could happen. And I know this isn't easy, but I think the United States actually has quite a lot of experience with uh, trying to uh, market a war just as atrocious as what's being done to people in Ukraine, 
a war that the United States was responsible for in the war against Iraq specifically, when hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were displaced, maimed, brutalized. Children had been starved for 13 years under United States economic sanctions. And then, you know, bring that up to the present tense and the United States is supporting and giving cover to Saudi Arabia's despot, Mohammed bin Salman, and his fellow coalition despot, Mohammed bin Zayaf, who's with the United Arab Emirates. And those two have been bludgeoning and punishing and killing people in Yemen, destroying the infrastructure there so badly that even if they weren't reeling from uh, famine conditions, it people would be dying because the infrastructure is being wrecked. And now the war in Ukraine affects that because people in Yemen depend on Ukraine and Russia for 38% of the grains that won't be planted or won't be sold. So we can learn, I think, if we pay a lot of attention to the legacy of Madeleine Albright. Her life has ended. She died. And certainly there were many, many people who were uh, with Madeleine Albright in State Department work and Department of Defense uh, issues and United Nations work who um, saw her as, as a leader of United States exceptionalism. But I think as we look at the legacy of Madeleine Albright, we should recognize that in that famous 60 Minutes segment when she told Leslie Stahl that well, Leslie had asked, are the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children worth it? And she said, yes, Leslie, I'm a humanitarian person, but the price, we think the price is worth it. That reverberated all throughout the Middle East. In fact, Osama bin Laden used that image of dying Iraqi children to justify his atrocious attacks against the United States. And then that built up you know, the, the forever wars, the war on terror, the bloodletting, this blood-stained set of 50 years has caused so much trauma and displacement and bereavement and war and suicides amongst those who've been sent off to wars from the United States. So Madeleine Albright also was confronted and in Kent State, Ohio, by a very brave young man. He was a teaching assistant, John Strange, and he challenged her severely, you know, and he was applauded in a full auditorium because the United States was getting ready to bomb Iraq again. And uh, Madeline went to a town hall, I think, thinking that she was going to help market that war. And he said, you can't maintain this double standard. Uh, the United States has supported dictators in the past. And the United States has invaded countries in the past as well. And so why are we uh, bombing civilians in Iraq? And she really couldn't answer the question. She tried to say, well, we are the indispensable nation. We stand taller than others. We see further. And if we have to use force, we must. And that idea of exceptionalism, that we're indispensable, that somehow if we do something, it's automatically right because we are the United States, the indispensable nation. That has had a very poor and bad 
legacy for foreign policy, certainly, and for how other people see us. So I think we need a sense of humility to say, yes, atrocities are being committed, and we have committed those atrocities. Yes, a nuclear threat is being used in a bullying and menacing and terrible way when Vladimir Putin says, I could use a nuclear bomber in some way suggest that, but the United States did the same thing repeatedly in our recent history. So we've got to be honest and we've got to look in the mirror. Thank you for listening to all of that. We, we, and we're gonna talk a little bit more uh, about that. We hear repeatedly from the, the march of the generals across the various corporate networks about how much more sophisticated and humane. How many times now I've heard the phrase, they, the Russians, they have dirty bombs. Now that, you know, m- most of their bombs, they can't control it. We, we here on the West, we have smart bombs. So that tells me, Kathy, uh, since they have smart bombs that don't miss, so when they kill children and they kill civilians and they kill innocents, they know what they're doing. But please talk a little bit more specifically about how those hundreds of thousands of children died in Iraq, in Iraq as a result of U.S. policy there. Uh, talk a little bit more about the details of that, because people doubt it. You say 100,000, 200,000, 500,000, oh, that's a lot of, that's the, the right-wing crazies. Mm, well, you know, <clears throat> I was in Iraq in 1991 during that war, Um, It was called the uh, Desert Storm. And every single electrical facility across Iraq was bombed precisely by the United States. And what that did to the capacity for the Iraqis to purify their water was predicted to cause endemic levels of disease because, you know, Iraq was a fairly sophisticated country in many areas. And the electricity was necessary to keep the sewage and sanitation plants running. So with the electricity out, and it was out in the hospitals as well, uh, that began what uh, developed into a, a nationwide crisis in which babies were drinking impure water. And that, of course, gave them diarrhea, gastroenteritis. But the babies were also suffering malnourishment. And often if they had a combination of malnourishment and gastroenteritis and a respiratory infection, these little tykes couldn't survive. They couldn't make it. And they were wasting away and dying in the hospitals in great, great numbers. And the United Nations people knew it. They were seeing what was happening. And they were very, very troubled. By 1995, they had issued a report saying that they estimated that the the sanctions had directly contributed to the deaths of 500,000 children. Now, that's when Leslie Stahl confronted Madeleine Albright. There were others who said, well, you know, the numbers might have been misreported. Maybe the projections are wrong. But Dennis Holliday and Hans von Sponek both resigned their posts. These were lifelong diplomats working for the United Nations, first Dennis Halliday as humanitarian coordinator in uh, working for as an undersecretary general of the United Nations, uh, the top guy in 
Iraq, he said, I can't go on with this any longer. Even if you just were to count the children who were afflicted with childhood leukemia, those children were all dying because they couldn't get the medicines. Why couldn't they get the medicines? Because the United States was prohibiting the importation of life-saving and crucial medicines and medical equipment. I would go into hospitals where there were no intercoms, no lights. People had to shout up the hallway, up the staircase to get a doctor's attention. Where doctors said, we've got you know a limited supply of blood bags and we don't know who to give it to, to, to the woman who just gave birth to a child and needs blood or to a child who won't survive unless the child gets the blood. I mean, these were terrible dilemmas doctors faced. And there was no mercy. It went on and on and on. And for 13 years, those economic sanctions strangled Iraq's economy and punished the most innocent of people. And the United States media treated that story like a hot potato, just dropped it would not cover it, no matter which angle people tried to pitch it to them through, uh, they would, they simply would not cover that story. And and yet if, um, well, Richard Garfield, for instance, was um, uh, an epidemiologist and a doctor, and when he questioned the statistics, that, that generated some coverage. But Joy Gordon wrote a book on the economic sanctions against Iraq and I, that, I think, has become the definitive um, go-to book, if you will. Nobody could question her scholarship. She was a Harvard professor. So, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that other people in other parts of the world were very aware of what had happened to Iraq, and they were very afraid that maybe they'd be the next ones in the crosshairs if you don't submit yourself to what the United States demands. And so surely Vladimir Putin is being menacing and bullying to people who ought not to have to try to submit themselves to his demands, and they won't. But that doesn't mean that the United States has had a a whitewashed history because we can't can't, uh, kind of wash out the blood-stained reality of our last 50 years. We're speaking with Kathy Kelly, uh, and we're talking about really immense contradictions uh, regarding U.S. foreign policy. Let's um, spend a few minutes on Afghanistan, which is now in uh, locked in for starvation after a 20-year punishing U.S. occupation in which they, remember, they dropped the mother of all bombs, mm-hmm. uh, the the one short of nuclear weapons uh, uh, in uh, the countryside there near a hospital in Afghanistan. But they ended their 20-year violent uh, occupation with a drone strike. Now, uh, you, you've been in the middle of fighting against drones. I, I've been told something like 90% uh, of the drone uh, firings miss their targets. Uh, we know on the way out, the U.S. bombed a family to death of water carriers. They were carrying bottles of water. They were working for a U.S. Uh, NGO. Uh, tell us about Afghanistan and humanity and smart bombs. 
Well, right now, um, they say 13,000 Afghan children have died in this harsh winter under the terrible economic collapse that's going on. Uh, you know, people haven't been paid because their money got tied up in the Reserve Bank of New York. The United States um, routinely says to developing countries, um, park your money in our bank because your banks are too unsafe and unstable. Well, and basically they park their money and it's gone. And so without money to regenerate the economy, uh, people have gone without pay. They've had to move to other circumstances and try to find ways to acquire food. The humanitarian agencies um, are, are scrambling. And David Beasley, who was actually a Trump appointee and is now in charge of the World Food Program, he was a big oil exec, but he has taken on that job with great earnestness, I believe. And he says, this is hell. What What's happening to the people in Afghanistan is hell on earth. And we've got to find some way to to change this. But, you know, you can't run a country's economy on relief shipments. It's, it's just not feasible. And of course, the Taliban uh, are they've just reversed their decision about letting girls go to school and said, well, no, we changed our mind. The girls got to school and they were sent home. And that's reprehensible. And I do believe that every effort has to be made to um, persuade the Taliban uh, that they can get carrots and the way they can achieve, um, you know, the basics of survival for their people, but they, they have to respect basic human rights. But I think Right now, the Taliban are probably turning more toward China, possibly toward Russia. And uh, it's it's unlikely that the United States will have much leverage whatsoever after stealing uh, $7 billion worth of Afghan funds that were in the Afghan bank. And so, I'm sorry, the, the, the Afghan Central Bank being held by the reserve in New York and and President Biden made an executive order on February 11th to freeze those funds, and that hasn't changed yet. And, and of course, people in Afghanistan were not responsible for 9-11. There were people in many, many areas of Afghanistan who, who had no idea what 9-11 was, what, what Twin Towers were. This was nothing they had anything to do with. And so, you know, they've been invaded, they've been occupied, they've been bombed, they've undergone night raids and people going off to Guantanamo as tortured, uh, broken people and families have been separated in bereavement and a new refugee uh, crisis. Uh, and for what reason would we punish Afghan children? I mean, I knew Afghan very young teens who, when they would hear about the economic sanctions against Iraq, you know, I'd sometimes tell them about why I ever went over to Iraq 27 times to break these economic sanctions. And they said, but why? Why would any country ever punish the children? And now those same young people are young parents. And they're asking me that same question. Why? Why must our children go to bed hungry at night? And the drones and that killing on the way out, that was significant in that was a, a demonstration 
of the kind of U.S. policy that was going on in the region for 20 years. Right. They left it was with the same murder that they entered with. Go on, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. It was unusual because it was covered by the international media, but otherwise that was routine. And I feel such sorrow for the family of Zemarai Ahmadi. You know, they uh, have lost so, 10 of their family members and three of them, Hayat and Malika, Sumaya, they were toddlers, uh, twins, and, an, and a little girl, age two, and then the twins were age three. And those young boys, Benjamin and Arvin, uh, they they were ten year olds. Uh, their their father survived, and these two little boys were the nephews of Zemarai Ahmadi, and then he lost his three sons. So that family is so bereaved, and they must have been so proud of Zemarai Ahmadi supporting an extended family by working for Nutrition and Education International, this very respectable NGO based in California that, as you say, helped distribute water and helped distribute food, a lot of food, to refugee camps. And, uh, you know, the, the confirmation bias, that's what they call it, of the drone analysts and their advisors as they kept reinforcing their wrongful belief that they'd found the high value target. This was the person who must be stopped. And they had it wrong every step of the way throughout eight hours of tracing every move Samarai Ahmadi made. And so this wasn't the fog of war. They had eight hours of tracing him. And we don't still hear an apology. In, instead, General Sami Saeed assigned to do the investigation and then uh, corroborated by General Lloyd Austin, joined the uh, Secretary of Defense, said there was no wrongdoing done. No, no one no wrongdoing. accountable. Oh, no wrongdoing. So we need that humility that Ilhan Omar speaks of, Representative Ilhan Omar. We need to look in the mirror and then certainly not justify what Vladimir Putin is doing. But, you know, if, if we want to prohibit that kind of activity, then we've got to take steps and say, you know what, we're going to prohibit ourselves from ever being able to commit these kinds of atrocities again. Yeah. And uh, back to that Iraq where we remember the kind of terminology, bomb the cradle of civilization back into the Stone Age. That was the linguistics of the time. Uh, and again, um, it, it, it is troubling to see this unfolding in Afghanistan, to see the support of the slaughter, the Saudi U.S. We have to say Saudi U.S. slaughter in Yemen because the United States has gone a, done a great deal to inflame and intensify the dying there. That would be correct, right, Kathy? Well, you know, the United States, now that there are sanctions against Russia, wants oil to be freed up by the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And so the, the two that I mentioned earlier, Mohammed bin Sayyaf and Mohammed bin Salman, have said to the United States, uh, if we give you more oil, you have to give us more weapons to kill Yemenis. And, you know, it's just that bold. 
And Boris Johnson was over there last week, the prime minister in the UK, uh, kind of cozying up to Mohammed bin Salman. You know, he's going to be good and rehabilitated in their view. He, he was considered monstrous for killing Jamal Khashoggi. The President Biden campaigned on a promise never anymore to support what Sa- the Saudi Arabia was doing. And gosh, they, um, they can sure change their minds when it's a matter of oil prices and elections coming up here. Well, these are smart bombs uh, that uh, I guess tracked the kids to school uh, mm-hmm. where uh, after a, a few lessons from a bomber, they learned how to play freeze tag in the morgue. Forgive me, uh, but mm-hmm. this is US policy is desperate. Final word, Kathy? Well, I think we should certainly spare a thought for every person in Yemen uh, who suffers now. But also I think about the migrants, uh, 60 African people were in a detention center. They were migrants and they were being prevented from going further. The Saudis hit that detention center and 60 were killed. So this goes on, and every human life is valuable. Every war should be covered with exactly the same level, the same commitment to building empathy for the victims as we see happening in Ukraine. All right. Kathy Kelly, I really appreciate all the work you've done for peace in this world, uh, standing against the drones. You've always been uh, in the middle of it. Uh, And if I had anything to say, uh, you'd be holding a a Nobel Peace Prize right now. Uh, But of course, uh, all things being equal, that's not going to (laughs) happen. But but thank you, Kathy. Be safe. And Uh uh, thanks for spending this time with us. I really appreciate it. Sure. And thank you, Dennis. And I I really want to encourage people to stay in touch with Code Pink and World Beyond War and Counterpunch and Antiwar.com, all the people that are trying to help us reach out for an alternative to war and keep peace news in mind over there in the UK. They've been great. So thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy. Be careful. We'll talk to you soon. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, short break, then we'll be back uh, with our special segment, Food Fight, Food Not Bombs with Keith McHenry, and he has a lot to say about uh, He's traveled widely. Uh, Keith has been around the world a couple of times and has a lot to say about what's going on in various places, about food and hunger and all that. Stay with us. to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're running late, uh, but we are really happy to welcome back to these airwaves Keith McHenry. He's the founder of Food Not Bombs. Food Not Bombs is a uh, global organization that tries to feed the hungry and call attention to the suffering around food, uh, malnourishment, and all that kind of crucial stuff. Keith, uh, welcome back to Flashpoints. what have you been thinking about? Uh, I know you've traveled globally. You've been in the Ukraine, in Ukraine. Uh, talk to us about what your thinking is in this context, food and hunger. Well, and this, is, 
this is a such a horrible um you know disaster and it's a disaster not only uh, of course for the victims of the war on all sides but also for the people around the world that are being deprived of access to food we you know one of the things that's really startling is the amount of money that hud says uh, would end homelessness in the united states is the amount of money the united states uh, gave in lethal um uh, aid to ukraine and uh, so that is really tragic and then in, in uh in my tra- you know we have had for example um Timur was a food not bonds volunteer in um who was born in Chernobyl Ukraine and he had a punk band called Sandinista and he did food not bombs in St. Petersburg for many years and and uh and uh neo nazis there stabbed him to death at the meal and uh Max his friend was injured but survived and that he was the first of uh four food not bombs volunteers uh, that I'm aware of that have been uh, killed by white nationalists in Russia. But at the same time, the Ukrainian food not bombs kids, ever since the coup of, of 2014, have been getting terrorized by white nationalists and Nazis in their country. And particular, for instance, uh, C-14 that was hired as the uh, police force for Kiev has been just brutal. And I've, uh, you know, they that organization has posted videos of themselves attacking uh, homeless camps in Kiev and mostly Roma or gypsy people, but also, you know, other uh, people, uh, poor people. And it looks so similar to the vigilante attacks that we see here in Santa Cruz by Take Back Santa Cruz. This footage is virtually identical and just shocking. And then um, the other thing that is happening is we're getting tons. We can't reach ever since the war, needless to say, been really difficult to reach any of the Ukrainian food not bombs chapters. And I know, for instance, the group in Sofia, Bulgaria, has been desperately trying to reach them. And then we've been communicating with the Moscow chapter, which was arrested uh, unfurling an anti-war banner um, almost immediately after the invasion started. And then the Polish groups, are because, which I spent a lot of time in Poland, and the uh, um, and the food not bombs chapters there are just becoming overwhelmed with uh, refugees. And I saw in the Christian Science Monitor this morning that the food not bombs kids that we've been um, providing funding for were astounded that the Polish community was welcoming. Uh, and and had kind of ended their racism towards Ukrainians because of this conflict. Whereas in the past, um, the you know Ukrainians were looked down upon um, from from what they were uh, saying in this uh, report. And I and I think that was true. I mean, there's been um, some of the elements in in the uh, Ukrainian um, military, the the far right movements there. Um, are well known from in World War II, uh, their their um, parents and grandparents and so on, in in attacking Poles as well as attacking Russians as well as attacking Gypsies, and and so it's 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 such a horrendous um, situation and and, uh, and so tragic, and uh, thank goodness the Polish community is is uh, you know it seems to be much more open to accepting refugees right now. But then, as Kathy was talking, you know, there's a refugee crisis all, all over because of uh, NATO wars. Um, so, you know, it's as horrible as what goes on, what is going on in Ukraine. We can see the same thing is happening uh, 
Um, we even ha- even on our own borders here in the United States, people fleeing um, uh, wars. And uh, I remember I was with Freedom Bombs down in Tijuana, and there was a huge number of Haitian refugees. And uh, technically not a war, but still U.S. foreign policy, like driving that country into desperation and into into hunger. And then the final thing that I've been thinking about, and, and a lot of people have been talking to me, including uh, today my, the person repairing the female bonds van, is just like Biden has announced that there's going to be uh, food shortages in the United States, and we already are having trouble with get access to food. For instance, this week we ordered double the amount of rice and beans to just in case there's an interruption and we didn't get the rice and beans from second harvest food bank because uh, and this is a has become a growing concern and thankfully we've been stockpiling food for a while in our shipping containers but you know we're trying to keep up with that and then the and then the other thing is the housing moratorium uh, eviction moratorium is ending on on april 1st and we're already overwhelmed with people coming to eat um, the number of people evicted uh, already is just astounding and we can only imagine the number of americans that are going to be forced into the streets at the same time and the gas prices inflation and all that is not making any of that any easier so i it's a knife edge right now on how much of a crisis it is here in santa cruz in the united states as well around the world so it's just tragic and there's no real reason uh you know, I mean, we could have uh, probably had peace in Ukraine had, you know, all parties committed to the Minsk agreement and, and uh, you know, but this neo-Nazi thing throughout Eastern Europe and is uh, kind of parallel to the their rise is parallel to the rise of the anarchist community after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So there's been a, that social tension has been happening and I myself have joined Food Not Bonds activists in fleeing uh, Nazi attacks in the streets of uh, Belgrade and and uh, in other parts of Eastern Europe over the years while I've been there. So this whole, this is just, a, it, it's tragic. And and uh, and I'd say then, the, and one thing is I, it lets us hope that none of these rogue forces that are in combat who have no, um, you know, command and control or, or you know, are not really connected necessarily to the in a direct way to the leadership of the Ukrainian government or anything. Get a hold of like uh, nuclear materials or you know when uh, you know these uh, you know biological resource centers that um, Newland uh, Victoria Newland talked about in the Senate hearings. You know, just like this is is, is astounding. This is far worse than the days when we had to get under our desks and duck and cover under the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's that's the way it seems to me. Yeah, that's that's the voice of Keith McHenry. We do a segment with him. He he is the founder of Food Not Bombs. The segment is called Food Fight, and it's the battle for uh, to eat and to have a place to live uh, in America. And as you say, gas prices up, all prices up. It is a shocking statistic that the money that they're going to now spend on this war, they always can find the money for war and war material and all that kind of stuff. But as you say, Keith, if they had taken the money <laughs> or equivalent amount of money, because they demonstrate they can do this anytime they want and devote it towards homelessness, they could have ended it. Is 
Is that an overstatement? Is that what you said, that, that the, the amount yeah. of money now being spent on the war could end homelessness? Why do you say that? Do you, is that calculated well, or is you just... Go to the house, yeah, you go to the Housing and Urban Development website, it says that, you know, that for $20 billion, they could end, provide um, rental, you know, make sure every single homeless person was taken off the street and would have a house. I think that's a, uh, an underestimation, but that's what the HUD website says. Um, save if it's even the $40 billion, which might be closer to realistic. Still, we just passed, a, a, you know, Biden just signed in another $770 billion, um, you know, military budget, of which a huge percentage of that is actually going to defense contractors. And, and sadly, most of the soldiers that are the, you know, that are... You know, who then come home and live in the tents. And, you know, I just was hanging out. We have a new volunteer who's a, a veteran woman. And she, because she's a woman, she's having a particularly hard time getting access to veteran uh, resources for housing. And she's like very, very frustrated with that. And she's been out on the streets for a number of years now. And, um, you know, to, and, and so, you know, we, it's okay to become cannon fodder, and but you know you're not going to get housing or, or help once you're done done with that. And that's the other tragic thing is if we the 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 innocent people in Ukraine are if we just are dumping um, you know, twenty billion dollars ultimately when you start putting it all together with all the different emergency amounts that have been you know sent there for yeah. lethal weapons recently um you know those people are just suffering and dying behind that too and and it seemed and and there's been um it doesn't seem like the u.s is really serious about negotiating uh, uh an end to the yeah. war well we're now, keith i'm sorry to interrupt we're gonna have to we're gonna have to leave it right there because we're right against the clock but um obviously uh sorry for that interruption we're gonna have to continue this discussion that's keith McHenry. Food Not Bombs founder, uh, decades, uh, putting his life on the line sometimes to just to give food, to bring food to hungry people. And uh, there are more and more of those folks in America. Thanks, Keith. Stay safe. We'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.